Good to see you this morning. We are about to finish chapter 18 of John this morning, if you want to turn there. Two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' hearing before Annas, the former high priest, and how John kind of weaves the telling of that with Peter's denial. Um, Jesus, before his accusers, has nothing to hide, whereas Peter does hide the fact that he is a disciple of Jesus. The servant girl watching the door uh, asks Peter if he is one of the disciples, and he says, I am not. And then standing by the fire, someone else asks, I am not, Peter replies. And then finally, a relative of Malchus, who, was, who uh, Peter had cut off his ear in the, in the garden, a relative of him asks Peter, didn't I see you in the garden? And again, Peter says, no, I am, I'm not a disciple of Jesus. And so Peter denies it, and the rooster crows, and this is something we know that Jesus predicted would happen, and Peter remembers that Jesus predicted would happen, that would happen, and he runs off weeping. In fact, uh, Jesus had predicted that Peter would deny him three times, just like happened before the rooster crowed. Jesus knew not only what was coming for himself, but he also knew how his disciples would respond to everything that was about to take place. Again, John contrasts Peter's denials with Jesus denying nothing. Jesus is our ultimate example of truth. He is truth, and we'll talk more about that in a minute when we get to his encounter with Pilate. So John explains that after Jesus' questioning, he's sent to Caiaphas, who is the acting high priest. But even though John tells us that Jesus is sent to Caiaphas, he doesn't actually give an account of this hearing. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week, that John was the last gospel to be written. And so both John and his readers are aware of the other gospels. They know that the other gospels do give an account of what happens with Caiaphas. So John doesn't see the need to retell that part of Jesus' darkest hour. So instead, he skips ahead to the morning. The Jewish leaders have decided to put Jesus to death something they actually decided to do a long time ago. And they decide to hold these illegal hearings in the middle of the night. And if you do go to the other Gospels, you can see that the Jewish leaders were fishing for something, anything they could find to charge Jesus, to formally charge him. Last week, I explained that in a proper trial, a proper Jewish trial at this time, you needed to have at least two witnesses whose testimonies lined up with each other. And then you would be able to formally charge the accused person if you could find two witnesses. But in the hearing at Caiaphas's house, none of the witnesses' testimonies line up. It's obvious that they've just found a bunch of random people in the middle of the night. Maybe they've paid them even. And they've tried to get them to testify against Jesus. But there's no matching testimonies. There's no agreement among the witnesses. And so finally, out of frustration, Caiaphas stands up. This isn't in John. This is in Mark. He stands up and he asks 
in Mark chapter 14, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then in verse 63, it says, and, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? He's talking to the whole council. And they all condemned him as deserving death. So after this, Mark and both Mark and Matthew also tell us that there is one last session held to decide Jesus's penalty. And of course, it's already been determined that they want him dead. And so the penalty is death. But there's a problem. Under Roman law, the Jewish leaders cannot put anyone to death. They don't have the power to enact this penalty. Rome did not allow the Jewish leaders to put anyone to death. And so they had no choice but to bring him to Pilate. Who was Pilate? Pilate was the fifth Roman governor of the province of Judea, the Roman province of Judea. They met, the Rome kind of divided out their kingdom, right, and put governors in charge. Pilate held this position for about 10 years, and he didn't actually live in Jerusalem. He lived in, in the coastal city to the west called Caesarea. Pilate was in Jerusalem now at this time because of the Passover, which doubled or tripled the population of the city. And, and Passover was a time where patriotism was at an all-time high, and there was danger of uprisings or rebellions against the Romans who occupied the land. And we know that Pilate was cruel and brutal. We know that because after crushing a revolt in Samaria a few years later, in 36 AD, he's removed from office and he's replaced because of the complaints of the Samaritans. They complained about how excessively violent he suppressed them in that revolt. And so this is the man that Jesus is about to face. And so verse 28 of our passage, chapter 18 says, Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so if Jews, what, what we need to, to realize here is if Jews entered a Gentile residence, they would become ceremonially unclean. But ceremonially unclean for the Passover meal? Didn't the Passover already happen on Thursday night? Jesus took it with his disciples. Um, Jesus and the disciples, remember, had eaten the Passover meal together just earlier, uh, not even 24 hours before. And now it's Friday morning. So is this an inconsistency in the Gospels? There's just so much that we would never know about the culture uh, and ways of life for, for first century Jews unless we studied it or read commentators that have studied it. John doesn't explain these things to us because his audience was first century people. In fact, that's the audience of the whole New Testament, first century people. And so Bible encyclopedias, Bible dictionaries, Bible commentaries all come in really handy when we're trying to figure out things like this. What's going on here? Um, many sc scholars argue that the Passover had indeed already taken place, but there were other important meals taking place this week 
that the leaders would want to be ceremonial, ceremonially clean for. Um, for example, this morning, Friday morning, the first full morning of Passover, there was a meal called the Chagiga. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, we see evidence of this in Numbers 28, um, where God gives instructions to have this meal. So there were actually many meals and celebrations taking place over the next seven days. And Passover was not just about one meal, but again, there were several different meals and celebrations happening um, during this whole week. And so the Jewish leaders would want to be ceremonially clean for those meals, or they would risk missing out. So that's what John is talking about here. Verse 28, or sorry, 29 and 30. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. The irony here is that these leaders are trying to keep themselves ceremonially clean. And yet we know from the other gospels that they've just conducted three, excuse me, three illegal trials three illegal hearings, and despite not having the power to sentence Jesus to death, they're still trying to find a way to get around this by handing him over to the Romans. So who are the ones doing evil in this scenario? Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Pilate doesn't have time for this. He, he must be at least partially aware of what's going on with Jesus. Remember, Roman soldiers were a part of the group that arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he doesn't want to deal with this. It's early morning. I'm sure there's more pressing matters um, because of the Passover. Jerusalem, again, has likely doubled or tripled in size, and so Pilate is concerned with the festival and making sure that nothing gets out of hand. The situation with Jesus could get out of hand, and so he can't completely ignore this situation. He still needs to be careful how he handles this. But the Jewish leaders are not going to make it easy for him, and we see the way that, we, that they respond to him. They're being smart Alex. They're being cheeky. They know that Pilate knows they can't have anyone killed because of Roman law. And so they state the obvious. And John comments on this in verse 32. That's supposed to be chapter 18, not 11. Chapter 18, verse 32, John comments and he says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, This was fulfilling what Jesus had said, that he would be lifted up, by by which he meant he would be crucified. And there's three instances in John where Jesus mentions this. I'm not going to go through all of them, but if you're curious, you can look them up. Something else to note is that he could only have been crucified by the Romans. If the Jewish leaders were able to enact the death penalty, they would have stoned him. And so uh, we move on to verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? We know that Pilate is at, at the very least aware of who Jesus is. But if he's asking what the charges are, 
which he does in verse 29, then there ha- he, he obviously hasn't been completely filled in. Maybe he doesn't know about the, these hearings that, ha- that had just happened in the middle of the night. And so from Luke 23, we know that the leaders do fill him in. In verse 2, it says, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so Pilate's first question gets to the heart of the matter. If Jesus is claiming to be a king and planning to overthrow the Jewish leaders or, or to lead a rebellion against Rome, this could be a serious problem for Pilate. There were other Roman court systems set up for minor charges, but charges involving the interest of the Roman Empire or involving execution, if execution was on the table, then the government himself would be responsible. And so Pilate wants to find out if this man is really a revolutionary, and if so, how dangerous is he? Has he been building an army? Does he have trained men ready to strike? And so Pilate asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answers with a question in verse 34. He says, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? In other words, is, your conclu- is this your own conclusion or are you just going off of what the other what the Jewish leaders are saying to you. Verse 35, Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? We don't exactly know Pilate's tone here, but his first question sounds derogatory. Am I one of you? No, you've been handed over to me. Tell me, tell me what's going on. And so Jesus says in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Jesus gives Pilate some insight into who he really is. He's not from this world, and neither is his kingdom. And the the response of his disciples proves this. Of course, Peter had to stand... Stand up, sorry, Peter had tried to stand up and fight uh, to stop Jesus' arrest, but Jesus had shut him down and explained to Peter, this is the Father's will. It's also important to note that Jesus doesn't say, my kingdom is not in this world. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is very much here, present and active in this world through us, through the church. We are a part of the kingdom of God because when we repented of our sin and willingly submitted to God's authority in our lives, we came under the spiritual rule of God. We willingly submitted to him. We came under the rule of his kingdom. And Jesus explains this throughout his ministry, and I'll just give one example. He tells Nicodemus, In John 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, unless one is born of the water and Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit 
is spirit. So Jesus says to him, the only way that you're able to enter God's kingdom is by being born again. And then I I didn't actually put it up here, but Nicodemus asks, how could I do that? Do I have to go back into my mother's womb? Nicodemus thinks that to be born again would be his own doing, his own work. But Jesus is saying that this is the work of the Holy Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, he says, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, mankind cannot produce spiritual things. Spiritual things, things of the Spirit, come from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And when we receive the Holy Spirit, that is a sign that we are truly believers and that we've moved from being people of the world to people of the kingdom of God. Anyway, my point is that the kingdom of God is here now on earth. It is a spiritual kingdom. We, the church, have willingly placed ourselves under the spiritual rule of God. But there will come a time when the kingdom of God will also be a physical kingdom when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back, he won't just reign in our hearts. He will physically reign over the whole world. And in the Old and New Testaments, there are prophecies about Jesus' coming, we know. In the Old Testament, there are prophecies about Jesus' first and second coming. And this this was a part of the confusion that the the Jews had about the Messiah. They, They didn't know that he would come and then leave and then come back again. They thought that these prophecies were all related to a one-time arrival of the Messiah. But we know that Jesus has returned to the Father and that when he comes back to the earth, the kingdom of God will not just be a, a spiritual kingdom, but a physical one as well, as Jesus reigns over the earth. And I just want to show you one of these prophecies in Isaiah chapter 11. It talks about Jesus' second coming. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and from a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what he he hears, by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. So this passage describes the peace that Jesus will bring when his kingdom 
when the kingdom of God becomes a physical kingdom on earth. Jesus will come and judge the wicked and everything will be restored. It describes the kind of nature that existed in the Garden of Eden, wolf and lamb sitting next, next to each other. No more killing. If you've watched nature documentaries, you know how brutal nature can be, right? But that's not what things look like when the kingdom of God fully arrives on earth. We see peace. We see restoration. This is what the Jews had expected when Jesus first came. Back to our passage in John 18, Jesus explains that his kingdom is not of this world. And then in verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus had demonstrated his kingship throughout his ministry with healings, exorcisms, power over nature, raising people from the dead. He's a king like no other, and his kingdom is a kingdom like no other. A few of the commentators I read said that Jesus here is trying to communicate that his kingdom was not a threat to the Roman Empire. But I'm not sure if that's really what Jesus' emphasis is. I think he's just trying to point out that he is a king like no other from a kingdom like no other. Because when you think about it, Christianity was a threat to the Roman Empire. And and we see great persecution by the Roman Empire a few few decades later under Nero. A few centuries later, Christianity actually takes over the Roman Empire um, and changes it completely. Uh, Sadly, though, it becomes all about political power and control with leaders that abuse their position, all while claiming to be for God and for his kingdom just like we see with the Jewish leaders. Let me read verse 37 again. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, he says. He's not talking about pointing out truths, like a teacher would uh, quote a, a proverb or a wise saying. He's talking about the revelation of God. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the revelation of God. It's interesting to see Jesus explaining that his mission on earth was to bear witness or testify to the truth. Again, revelation of God. But then he's almost challenging Pilate to question whether he's on the side of truth or not. Is Pilate for truth? This is something that Pilate is going to wrestle through in this moment. He's encountering the way, the truth, and the life in the flesh. Maybe he senses what Jesus is doing. Maybe he's aware of this challenge that Jesus is presenting him. And he questions truth altogether. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Pilate doesn't realize that truth is standing right in front of him. However, in the short time that Pilate has spent with Jesus, he does see, he does realize 
that Jesus is not an insurrectionist. He doesn't find that Jesus is a threat to either Rome or Israel. But this week is still the biggest festival of the year. Pilate needs to avoid letting things get out of hand. He can't risk letting, uh, he can't risk angering the Jewish leaders too much. They can stir things up. And so in verse 39, he, th- he throws them a bone, thinking that he can appease them. And he says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The English word for uh, robber that's used here is not quite the full meaning of this Greek word. Uh, What it really means is a violent man who would rob or fight in uprisings. And Mark tells us about Barabbas in, in chapter 15 of Mark, verse 7 says, And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And so Barabbas is more than a robber. He's a rebel against Rome and the Jewish leaders. And he's killed people. He's a murderer. The Romans likely saw Barabbas as a terrorist. Again, there's, there's irony here. Jesus has, just, Jesus has just told Pilate that his disciples are not a threat to Rome or the, Jew, the Jews, the Jewish people. There will be no fighting to free Jesus no insurrection to install him as king, but a man that is probably a leader of terrorists and a threat to Rome is about to be released. Pilate, knowing that Barabbas is a part of a group that doesn't regard the Jewish leader's desire for stability with Rome, but but takes matters into their own hands by planning uprisings and attacks on Roman soldiers, Pilate, knowing this, gives them a choice which he thinks will be obvious. Barabbas, the murderer, who do you want to choose? Barabbas, the murderer who causes all kinds of problems for the Jewish leaders, or Jesus? But we know that they already want Jesus dead. And so it doesn't go the way that Pilate assumes it will. I'm sure he's aware that just a few days earlier, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the people celebrated him, they definitely would have caught the attention of the Roman presence in Jerusalem, this this situation. And so Pilate, being aware of this, likely believes that this crowd is going to choose to free Jesus. But we know from the other Gospels that the leaders stir up the crowd to choose Barabbas. And it says in Mark 15, chapter, or sorry, verse 9, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent of these charges. He's not an insurrectionist. But he did have the favor of the people just a few days earlier on on what we call Palm Sunday now. And so Pilate assumes that the people will free Jesus. But we also see here that he rightly perceives 
that the Jewish leaders don't like this attention that Jesus has received. Pilate must be more aware of Jesus than he lets on. But he makes a few mistakes. He, he shouldn't have referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews. This probably enrages the Jewish leaders. Pilate's making light of the charges against him. He's making fun of it. He probably thinks it's absurd. He likely despises the Jewish leaders, and they despise him, I'm sure. And so he's taking a shot at them by referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews. We know from the other Gospels that by this point, Jesus has been roughed up a little bit. And so Jesus is standing there, bruised and bleeding. And I'm sure he doesn't really seem like a king in this moment. Is this the reason that the crowd turns on him? Sure, the Jewish leaders stir them up. But again, a few days earlier, everybody was welcoming him into Jerusalem with palm leaves and branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're recognizing him as Messiah. What is Messiah and King to these people? Well, again, the common belief about Messiah is that he will come and free Israel from their captors. And at this moment, the captor is Rome. But Jesus standing there now, bruised and bleeding, doesn't look like someone who's going to free them from Rome. And we know that that's not why he came to earth. But to the crowd here, Jesus looks defeated. They want a king with strength, authority, and power to crush all enemies. In an earthly sense, Jesus has surrendered his right to these things. He's emptied himself and submitted to the Father's will. This is his hour of weakness, but in his hour of weakness, he is strong. He is determined to do the Father's will no matter the cost, and he does have authority. The cross, which looks like the end, which looks like shame and weakness, becomes the means through which he triumphs over his enemies, the power of darkness. Why do these Jewish leaders hate Jesus so much? That they would be willing to free a man who was arrested for good reason, a violent murderer who doesn't even respect their authority anyway. The Jewish leaders hate Jesus because he has exposed their wicked hearts. And that's being exposed even more here now as they choose to free Barabbas. Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of these leaders. They loved power. They loved position and authority. But the authority and power that they had came by administering fear and guilt and shame. They controlled the people by adding to the scripture, rule upon rule upon rule, and then shaming anyone who didn't follow those rules. But Jesus came to offer freedom from guilt and fear and to take away shame. He came to teach that religion is not the answer. Following rules and earning your way is not the answer. He was the answer. He was and is the free gift of salvation, God's free gift, not earned or worked for, but given to us freely. Jesus was triumphant, but in a way, that still confuses people because it's not the world's way. 
Jesus appears weak and defeated, but we know that that was the plan all along, to surrender himself on our behalf, to be our sacrifice, so that we would be freed from sin and the fear of death. The tragedy of this story isn't that Jesus was beaten and killed and crucified, as heart-wrenching as that is. The tragedy is what John says at the beginning of his gospel. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The Jewish leaders who were supposed to be experts at understanding and teaching the scriptures missed that the Messiah had come. They're too blinded by power and position. They're too occupied with whitewashing their tombs, as Jesus calls them out on, looking good on the outside, but inside being full of death and hypocrisy. And then the crowd here, how many of them were celebrating Jesus just a few days earlier when he rode into Jerusalem? And now they've turned on him. He's not the kind of king that they were looking for. He's not the kind of Messiah that they wanted him to be. It's a tragedy because he's standing right there, the Son of God, the King of Kings, and they don't recognize him. And so I want to ask you this morning, do we recognize him as King? Maybe we've confessed that, but are we living that? Does Jesus have authority in your life? Are you actively seeking his will for your life? Are you actively following him? These are great questions to to ponder, to reflect on. And as I've talked about the last couple of weeks, to journal about. I, I, I know I've been pushing this journal a lot, but we need to be regularly asking ourselves these things and, and how you actively follow him as king and lord of your life is something that we need to work through. And I think that writing it down, working through it in a journal is a great way to do that. Um, we're not earning our salvation by doing that, of course, when we're, when we're figuring stuff out. We've already, our sins have already been paid for on the cross. And, we, and Jesus brought that salvation for us. It's free, remember. But we do have a responsibility to seek him. And so how do we do that? Because it's more than Sunday morning services. It's more than just reading your Bible. It's about relationship with Jesus and with each other as the body of Christ. In Philippians 2, Paul says, work out what God is working in you. That's just my paraphrase, but that's essentially what Paul is saying. Work out what God is working in you. What is God working in you? How can we, how can we know what God is working in us unless we work it out, right? Unless we reflect on what he's doing in our lives. And so I encourage you this time to take Time. I encourage you this week to take time to pray and to think these things through, to reflect on these things. Again, I think journaling is a, is a great way to do that. Um, it, it's a great way to reflect on what's going on in your life. It, it's a tool to do that. And so I really encourage you to make, um, to make this something that you, you regularly do. Let's bow our heads together.